that song. That song. Devin. Would you read that first there to there while I get it together? And you who are dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Thanks, guys. Wow. That song has been a trigger for my heart for a long time. Blake didn't know that, but please don't sing that song before I preach again. Y'all can sit, y'all can sit down. Golly. I love it. That's an incredible song. Deeply rooted in the scripture. Thank you, Blake, for all that you do. Team, that was really, really good. Golly. So it was early 2000s, and I was a youth pastor at, uh, in the Waco area. I was working on my master's degree, and I was a youth pastor at First Baptist Church of Hewitt, Texas, which has grown a lot since the Chip and Joanne, Joanne, it was before Chip and Joanne, y'all. And uh, so it's a much different place now. But um, I loved serving that church. It was an incredible church. I learned so much under an incredible mentor, Roy Marshall. He had been at that church when I... Uh, when I became youth pastor, I'd been there for 30 years, and he stayed there for 15 more years. We need more men like that. Yeah. And so me and, got, me and my wife got married. We live in this duplex. We realized that we really couldn't afford a duplex. So the, the church was really kind to let us move into the, the, the parsonage. And so I remember church parsonage, you know, pastor's parsonage. Usually there was a church and usually somewhere pretty close. There was a parsonage where the pastor would live. And then over the years, churches have been very kind to, to uh, allow pastors to live elsewhere. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, I love people, but I like to get away from people too. And so, but we weren't able to. But we loved it. We, we, for free, we got to stay in this place. But everybody knew where I lived. Everybody knew where I lived, including my students. So one day we woke up and it was the fall. One of those things when it starts to cool down, what kids like to do in the fall. I don't know if you like to do this. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying this is what happened in my life. I'm just telling the story. Uh, I woke up and it was white outside, but it had not snowed. I had been teepeed. You know what that is? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I say I had been teepeed, I don't know. They must have raided Sam's Club or something. Because, listen, y'all, there was so much toilet paper in my trees and in my yard, it literally looked like it had snowed on the ground. And I had learned something as a student, we had, as, a, as a high schooler, my, my house had been teepeed several times. So I learned like there was a way, you know, if you, as you're cleaning that, that teepee up, 
the toilet paper, as you clean them, you can pick up stuff on the ground. But, you know, yeah, a lot of that stuff's in the trees if they've got good arms really high in the trees. And there's no way you're reaching that stuff. And so I learned instead of pulling them down, <laughs> I learned this special way to do it. I don't know if you know this, but, but if you just take a lighter and you light that toilet paper, it will burn all the way up. And it will burn all the way up. And, and it, it, this worked out great for me for so long. Literally, it works like it, that little thing burns. You don't do it when it's real. Don't do it now, y'all. Don't, please don't do it now. It's a burn ban. So don't, don't go do that. Don't say the preacher said. Don't say, don't do that, y'all. But this is what I did. It was really wet. And uh, outside at the time, it was humid. And I, I did this. And it was working. And uh, all the stuff on the ground, we, we put in this big, gigantic garbage can. So we were just blotting these things. We were cleaning up. We were having a good time. No, this is way before kids for me and Jennifer. Oh, we were so young, whippersnappers at this point. We were having a good time cleaning up. People driving by kind of laughing at us as we're cleaning up. And, and uh, I looked over. This is a true story. I looked over. And that garbage can, which was chock full of toilet paper, was on fire. Now, when I say it was on fire, we had placed that, unfortunately, we had placed that, placed that about four foot from the house, and that flame was hitting the eve of the house. Thankfully, the house did not burn down. We did not burn down the parsonage. Thankful, thankfully, we did not. But one of those, as we were lighting that must have, there was a tree, you know, we're young, we don't know what we're doing, right? There was a tree above this trash can full of toilet paper, and as that went up, that eventually released that toilet paper, which was on fire, which proceeded to fall into the garbage can, which proceeded to light, and you know the rest of the story. And so as I thought about today, as I thought about kind of how I would give a picture of where we're at in our society, it's like a dumpster fire of moral values. And that's because that sounds really harsh, but I have to say that before we start, because it makes me mad. It makes me mad today that, that what I'm going to read is going to make some people mad. Like, it, that makes me mad because culture has gone so far away from the way God desires for us to live and God wants us to live because God wants his, he wants our best. He wants us to experience his goodness in every way. And so there's this dumpster fire. I mean, we have this struggle with identity, like, who are we? We talked about it last week. How do we find who we are and whose we are? We find it in the scripture. We find scripture and we need to do it together. We talked about that last week. It's so important. But today we have this struggle. Like, who are we? Like, who am I? We have that question. Like, who defines that? And, and what's my identity? We have this struggle with gender identity. We have this major struggle with marriage. And how do we define marriage? We have this struggle of, of men and women and all of these things. Man, I could go on and on and on. But the enemy has been so good and has had so much victory. It's like a dumpster fire of moral values, which makes this message so crazy countercultural. But I do believe this. God's word is good. And just as we talked about last week, that, that if we would just lean in, like God, God has our fullness in mind when he wrote this to us. He has our best in mind when he wrote this for us. And so as we lend our ear to it, I, I encourage us today to, to really open our, our ears and maybe even 
I don't know how to say this. I, didn't, I, I kind of struggle. Like, how am I going to say this? But may, try, to, try to come with like a blank slate. And when it comes to the truth of this passage today, try to come with an open mind and a blank slate. Like, what is God going to teach me through his word? This is inerrant. There's no errors here. And it's for our, for our good. And we're going to read it in context. And that's the problem because this is read with the first few words you will recognize the first few words of where we start in verse 18. You've heard them before, and most of the time it's kind of almost like a, it's either one, it's like I, I amen, or it's like, oh, me. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, yeah, I agree with that, or like, man, that's, it's inflammatory, so to speak. It's like a dumpster fire, and it causes some, some chaos and confusion and, and sometimes um, brokenness. And man, but if we could just understand what these verses say in the context of what it's said in. That's important. We have to always read God's word in context. Context is king. Context, context, context. So what is the context of the book of Colossians? There's this progression, right? We have to understand and believe that Christ is supreme, that he is above all, and he is in all. And there's a challenge by Paul, God through Paul, to walk in Christ. If he is supreme, to make him supreme in your life and to walk in him. And then we made this transition in chapter 3 that, that, that there's a practical side of these things that we're going to walk in today as well. We're going to learn what this means, how this rolls out in our life, and we put off the old way, and we put on the new way, and we do it through God's word, and we do it together. We talked about that last week, and then there's this, this verse in chapter, in chapter 3, in verse 17, it says this, if you'll open scripture, if you haven't already, chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 17, it says, whatever you do, this is a command, by the way, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father through him. And so the following is the logical outflowing of that verse. So if we're to do everything, whether word or deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, here's what that practically looks like in our life. That's the, that's the framework of what we're going to talk about. The ESV expository commentary says that, that these verses set in the context of relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and any human authority is relativized by his ultimate authority that this is, this is that command put in concrete. Like, how does that look in our life? Like, if this is the command to, in verse 17, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, here is what that looks like in our life set in concrete. And so there's a progression here. If Jesus is Lord, then Jesus is Lord of all. Are you with me? If he's Lord, he's Lord of all. And if he's Lord of all, then he is Lord over our interpersonal relationships. Okay, And then if he is Lord of our interpersonal relationships, then he gets to establish the rules of engagements for those relationships. He gets to design those things. I read a quote this week I thought I would read today. It's a guy, he was a missionary, and, and he's also an author. It's a guy named Lou Nichols. He says, I have a riding lawnmower which has served me faithfully. With the mower came an instruction book, the truth which sets the mower free to do that for which it was created. Now, suppose that I was wanting to give a mower a special treat because it has served me faithfully, he says, for 12 years. So I fill the gas tank with chocolate syrup. We all know that chocolate syrup is more fun than gasoline. 
It tastes better. It's a real treat. But the lawnmower will be destroyed. Why? Listen to this statement. thought it was profound. Because it's freedom to perform requires submission to the lawnmower, to submission to the law of lawnmower liberty. You see what he did there? I want to read that again because I didn't do a good job reading it. Because it's freedom to perform requires submission to the law of lawnmower liberty. We cannot doubt this today, that God has in mind incredible and abundant life and joy for our lives. He wants to experience his fullness. And that has been what we talked about so much in the book of Colossians. God wants us to experience his, his fullness. He has made us alive in Christ completely, nailed all of our sins, all of our sins to the cross. Why? So we can have freedom. God wants us to have freedom, not bondage. God wants us to have life, not the opposite. He wants, to have, he wants us to have fullness. And so let's jump in. Why not? Why not? Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. It says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, some of your versions say slaves, obey in everything those who are your, your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, before I go on and we jump in your notes, the, the, the idea of these verses is this, is that when we make Christ supreme, it changes the way we relate to him, to relate to God but it changes the way we relate to everything else in life. It changes us, and it changes the way we relate to the world. It changes the way we relate to people, and this is a good thing. Why? Because we have a new way. We have a new life that leads us to the fullness and abundance that God has designed for us. And so everything changed, but if you grab your scripture, and if you were to have a pen, maybe you don't. There should be one in the pocket in front of you. Maybe you have one in your hand. You can take some notes here, but I want to encourage you to underline, as I did, the times in our verses where it uses the term Lord. I think this is the major emphasis of these verses. If you look in here, in verse 18, I'd underline in verse 18, Lord is fitting in the Lord. In verse 20, children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And verse 22 it says, bond service, obeying everything, those who are earthly masters. And then at the end of that verse, fearing the Lord. In verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord, you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then there's that verse in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, master, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master, which is the same sense as Lord. So over and over, we see the, the big overarching idea is that, that we, we experience 
and we work out that verse 17, whatever you do, by placing Christ as Lord of our life. And when we do that, that changes the way we relate to everything in life. And that starts with me. And that starts in our home. And we must realize this. God does his best work through hearts and homes. Did you get that? Now, I do realize very much so that there is an election year coming next year. There's going to be a presidential election. And I know we're going to have to talk about it. We're going to have to, to study, and, and we're going to have to understand what, the, what Scripture says. And we definitely need to go be, be civically minded and be light in the darkness by voting a biblical principle mindset. Whoever that is, you do your research. I should do mine too. We should do that. But here's the truth. God changes cultures not through politics. He changes it through my heart and our homes. And so this verse is, hits home, like literally. Like the, the supremacy of Christ starts here. And that's what Paul is saying. He, he knew this. Supremacy of Christ starts here in my heart. And the supremacy of Christ starts in my home. This is so practical. These are some hard words that we're going to have to walk through. And, and I'm going to do my best in the short time that I have today. To, to show you just how good and rich these verses are. It's so good. That's why it makes me so mad that as I read this and as I study, like I trembled this week having to, to, having to explain because there's so much brokenness around, around these verses, specifically the first few words of these verses. Like it's hard and that makes me mad. But, but the truth is like this should make us glad, <laughs> Because God has a perfect design for us. There's three relationships and six different roles that, that are functioning within these verses. But they are all affected and infected and reoriented around the fullness and supremacy of Christ. And that's the basis of these things. Here's the idea that Jesus changes everything. And it starts in my heart. But as it goes into my heart, it starts to go into my home. It begins with my wife and for my wife, her husband. And then it trickles down to when that's healthy, usually, normally, God's design is for kids to happen. So it trickles down to that parent-kid relationship. And then the part of the home for them, it was home. They literally had servants in their house. This was normal back then. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around that because you probably don't have servants in your house. But for them, it was normal. But that's the workplace, the workplace environment. It, it, it infects and affects the way we relate to each other. And so let's jump in. Verse 18, what in the world do we do with this wife submit to your husbands? Is that a trigger for you? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. But I know for some in the room it is. I know, I know very well that this verse, the enemy has taken this wonderful truth, this wonderful design, and he has done what he does best and perverted it and turned it to something that seems so negative. But I want us to see it in the context of of what we're talking about. I'm going to spend the majority of our time today, the rest of our time, talking about these few words, wives submit to your husbands at his fitting 
in the Lord. And then the response to that, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So Paul spends some time treating that most fundamental relationship in the home. Once you, once you get that relationship with Christ, that's the most, but, but this, that's the vertical, but the horizontal, like that, that, that's, that marriage relationship is fundamental. It's foundational. And so he treats this, and, and my two words for this, when, when Christ is in our home, this is the point of verses 8 and 19, there is both love and respect. There is both love and respect. I just want you to write that down as we talk through these verses, because it's going to take a little bit of time to unpack these truths in these verses. But just write down the, the, the things that we need to, to take home, so to speak, like literally take home, is that our homes, our marriages should be filled with love and respect. But when these verses are read in the context of our culture, it either falls on deaf ears or it falls on angry ears. And, man, I just... I just want to say a few things about these, these words, specifically those words, wife, submit to your husbands. What does that, what does that mean? And I want to spend some time on it because I know this. This verse has been abused over and over and over by men for years. I just want to say that. And then there's this, that's, that's one extreme, extreme. And now there's this more, I think it's more modern. I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not a culture buff, so to speak. But there's this modern response to that where I, I don't even like the term because I think that this is God's term. But, but this idea of, of women empowerment, I think that, that this is actually, this scripture is all about empowerment. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But that's the word. It's a response to some abuse that's happened over the years. And so, so how do we... <laughs> How do we balance this? So excuse me today, I, I like to be more narrative in my, in my sermons, but today I will be very didactic. I, I will be, I'm just gonna teach today. I just want us to understand what this, it's so important that we unpack this and, and understand what this truth is that wives submit to your husbands because it is true, it's right there. What do we do with it? We, we have to wrestle with it. We have to, to explain it. So, so here's some things that I want us to, that, that I think are key to understanding what Paul was saying there, what the Holy Spirit, what God was saying through Paul in those verses, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. The first is this, is that the wife is not being called to blind subjection, but a voluntary trust. This is so important. There there is a very important distinction here in in the verbiage. The the word there for submit is hupatasso. I know we can wrestle with it in the English, but I think it's important that we, that we get the Greek. And you're like, man, you're thrown out there to sound smarter. Listen, I'm not that smart. But God was really smart. He gave that word to us. <laughs> Hupatazo means this. It means to arrange yourself under. Literally, that word means to arrange. There is no more literal translation than that. Arrange yourself under. So what does that mean? 
that means that the wife chooses to put herself in submission. That's very important. It does not mean the opposite where she is put there by her husband. And that's where the abuse comes in. Men have come in and said, you have to submit to me. Listen, that's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying the wife chooses. There's a voluntary trust. Like I am choosing by God's design to to trust my husband who by design is not to be my Lord, but to be my spiritual leader and the spiritual leader of my, my home. And second, I'd like to be reminded of, of what Paul actually believed about women. What's the context of Paul's belief about women? You go back to Genesis chapter one. He very well knew and he taught many times that man and woman were created by God and they were created in the image of God and they are equal. This is important. When we say, when we say wives submit, it almost seems and the world hears it The world's ears, enabled by the enemy, says that the woman is lesser and the man is more. That is the opposite of what Paul is saying. Actually, by saying what he's saying, he is actually elevating the status of wives because the wives had, let's be honest, it was a very patriarchal society. The wives had no ability to vote like they do today. They had no ability to choose. They had very little voice at all. And so he is elevating them. Like he said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says, For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. We're going to say that again in a little bit. And there is no male or female. Why would he say that? Because we are all equal in Christ. We are all man and woman. God, do I have to say this? I'm going to say this. God has made us man and woman. And they are distinct. They are different. And they are perfectly and wonderfully made by God's design. It's, It's sad that I even have to say that. But we have to wrestle with that. And so even though we are different and created differently, men and women are created equally in the image of God. And that's so important that we hear that. Back in the days that Paul was writing around that time, Aristotle was writing. And Aristotle was writing things like, the female is a misbegotten male. Ouch. When it came to politics, this is what he said about women. As regard to sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. Aristotle, a really smart guy, wrote that. For decades following when Jesus walked the earth and when Paul was was writing these verses, for decades there were rabbis who were known to thank God for not making them Gentile, slave, or woman. That's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is saying something that's so countercultural in his time. It continues to be countercultural in our time. He is, he is actually doing the opposite. Paul is not operating from the assumption that women are by nature inferior, but rather from the belief that by nature they are equal, co-equals as creations and, and created by God and image bearers of God. So the third thing to notice 
which help us to understand this. As we go on from verse 18, the second part, it has this incredible qualifier as fitting in the Lord. And so that's a very important qualifier. What does that mean? This means that submission is only, can only be healthily happening in the context of what Paul said in Ephesians. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, we submit to Christ. Everyone does. And then husbands and wives submit one to another, right? And so there's a, there's a pre-submission, so to speak, and that, that is inferred here. We've got to read a little bit wider into Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so there's this qualifier as fitting to the Lord. And I think that's why the verbiage here matters. As you go on and talk about children, it says, children, obey your parents. It doesn't say, wives, obey your husband. Why? Because that's not, the, that's not the, the, the essence of that word submission. Submission means voluntary trust. That, that, that uh, you have to have this collective, it's, it's, it's presupposing the context of our verses. What is the context? Let's go back to it. Jesus is supreme. A person makes Jesus supreme and Lord in their life. A person has put off the old and put on the new. A person is in everything by word and deed, giving glory to God as under his name. That all of that is presupposed. And so all of this, this submitting is presupposing a man has done that and is doing that. And that gives something of substance for the woman to submit to. So if a woman's husband would ask her to follow a pagan God, like should she submit, just obey, just do what he says. No, that's not, that's not. She would not be required to submit because that is not fitting to the Lord. You see how important that is as it's fitting to the Lord. Why is this? It's because the husband is not the wife's Lord. Only Jesus sits in that seat. Please hear that. Only Jesus is Lord. She is called first and foremost to follow Christ, to make him supreme. And if Christ has called her to marriage, then as her husband brings the relationship of the household into following Christ, as he submits to Christ, as he leads his family to submit to Christ, I have learned this about godly women. They gladly follow that. They gladly voluntarily trust their husband. It's when they don't, that is the problem, y'all. That is the problem. And, and as you go into verse 19, it says, husbands love your wives, so do not be harsh with them. That word love, I don't have time to unpack it because, man, I am going to run out of time today. But that word is, is, is a very important word. That word is when, every time the New Testament talks about the love of God has for us, it's that same word. When it talks about Jesus' love for us, that he loved us enough to die for, on the cross for us, he used that same word. And what word is that? That's the word agape. And that distinguishes the husband's love to his bride in the Christian context, different from any other context. The Aristotle was not that kind of love. This is the kind of love that God has. It's a sacrificial love. It's a never-ending love that, that the husband is called to Man, golly, I wish I had more time, y'all. I should have preached this in like three sermons. I really should have. I've got so much in my heart to share with you. 
about this. It's so, it's so good. It's so rich. So wives are submit to submit. What are they to submit to? One who has put off the old and put on the new self. You got to read it in context. Context is king. Context, context, context. Mm. But these verses are not asking women to step down. Men, these verses are actually more for us. It's asking us to step up. Maybe you missed that. What am I saying? Man, what the world sees in these verses is a word of condescension and devaluing is actually uplifting to the woman and challenging to us men. It's saying that men, we are to make Christ supreme. We are to sacrifice everything for our wife and for our family. And we have the great privilege and responsibility to lead our family in the ways of Christ. That is our challenge. And listen, not a one of us is perfect in that, and I am certainly not. I've got room to grow in this. If you are a young woman, may I speak to you and you are not married? <laughs> I don't know how many are some in the room that are not married. May I say this? Go look for that kind of man. Go look for that kind of man that is sold out to Jesus and is submitting to him. Go look for that kind of man. He is intentionally putting off the old and he's putting on the new. Young men who are not married, go be that man. And go look for a woman looking for that kind of man. And simple enough, isn't it? Golly, it's so good. Love and respect. I'm going to come back to this, I think, in the month of September. I'm going to talk a little bit toward marriage then in September. So I, I've got some flex in my time. I'm going to come back. And I have some really great quotes from the book, Love and Respect, that I had locked and loaded for you guys. But I'm going to make you wait for it. I'm going to wait for it. All right. Let's go on to the next. And so we have love and respect in the marriage relationship. And then when it comes to, to children and parents, we have these two ideas of obedience and intentionality. That's the, two, that's the two blanks there. There's this verse, there's 21. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children. And 20, it says, children, obey your parents. You see, there's, there needs to be obedience. It harkens back to the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and, and then to obey your parents. So children, obey your parents. And parents, parent well. It is an incredible privilege and, and sacred responsibility that God has given us. And there is a war for how we define parenting today. And I, I, I really probably should have separated this, but, but this will give you an idea. Like parents even kind of hesitate to lead their children and teach their children these days. There, there is a North Carolina school mission statement that says this. This is crazy, y'all. It says this, the multi-age classroom experiences inspire teachers, multi-age classroom, students and adults. So inspire teachers and students who alternately act as instructor and pupil, leader and follower, ultimately cultivating students' ownership of their distinct self-worth and appreciation of the inherent worth of others. From this effective and encompassing preparation, graduates advance with serene self-assurance to their next school and into the adulthood as agile thinkers, poised communicators, and gracious collaborators, docents of their first of their own learning and engineers of authentic and fulfilling lives. That's a lot of big words. Here's what that means. 
that they're trying to make it to where they're saying their mission is that teachers teach students and students teach teachers. And they're the same. And that's messed up. That's not what God's word says here. There's a real clear, it says, children, obey your parents. Parents, parent your kids. Obey and be intentional. While the culture tells us that children are docents of their own learning and engineers of their own authentic lives, the Bible here gives us a clear, different message. And here's the message. Children are not wise enough to engineer their own lives. I know, kids, I'm not putting you down, but I'm still learning. I'm still a kid, but I learned a lot more. I know a lot more than I did when I was 12. I know a lot more than I did when I was 18. And some of you guys are 30, 40 years older than me, and you know a whole lot more than me. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, children, listen. Listen to your parents. They really do have wisdom. Obey them. They really, they really know a thing or two. Obey them. And parents, take serious. Be intentional and lovingly guide and cultivate your children. Don't delegate that to anybody else. That's our responsibility. Man. What an incredible responsibility that is. Again, I'm coming back in, in September to talk a little more about that as well. And we get to the third point. Verse third, 22 and following culminates in, in chapter 4 and verse 1. It's the idea of service and kindness. If we make Christ supreme and we honor him in every way, in word and deed, then we, we respond in our marriage with love and respect, and we respond in our parenting and childing relationships with obedience and intentionality. But in our work life, there's this description of bond servants. Some of your versions say slavery. And, but I think that the wider, I'm not going to get into slavery because, man, that's a trigger word in our context. But slavery back then was different. Here's the cool thing. Even in these verses, you see it. Slavery then, I mean, no one wanted to be a slave. But if you found yourself a slave, if you worked hard, you could become in good grace with your master. And you can actually be adopted into the family which is crazy. You can become a fully functioning part of the family of that family. And because of that, that master can one day make you part of his family and you can have the same inheritance that the kids do. That's actually a, kind of what it's saying there. Like if we work hard, we're to work hard in our work life. We're to work hard of our earthly master to honor our heavenly master. Why? Because we already have an inheritance we have a deposit of that inheritance. It's called the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? We have it. And so that changes, it reorients the way that we serve. And so we should work hard. And we should honor the Lord by working hard wherever we work. We should, Christians should be the hardest workers, y'all. We should work hard as unto the Lord. I mean, there's no laziness when it comes to the Lord. We work hard as unto the Lord. We honor the Lord as we work hard. And then there's that verse to masters is to treat the people that we supervise, the people under us with kindness and respect and justice. That is a great word. It's funny here that when we hear the word slaves, it's almost like Paul is like affirming slavery and debasing them and putting them down. But actually, even by speaking to a slave, Paul was elevating them to human status. And they weren't in those days. People didn't even talk to slaves because they weren't considered humans. So Paul elevates them and says, hey, workers, work hard. And masters have kindness. 
Man, these are some tough topics, aren't they? We've covered a lot today. How do we wrap this up? Man, how do we put a bow on it? The band's going to come up. We're going to have a closing song. We want to affirm that this is good. This is for our good. It's for God's good. It's for good. It's for the good of the world. I want to just highlight three things as we wrap up. The first thing is this. Jesus cares about our most important relationships. He really does care because he cares about you deeply. Jesus cares about you. And also, second, in our most important relationships, God, wife, kids, everything flows from that, right? We need to see Jesus as supreme, as top priority, top of the, if there's a triangle, top of the triangle. That speaks to his value. We value him most above all things. That's what the book of Colossians has been inspiring us and challenging us to do in our own life. But also in our close relationships, it's important that we invite Jesus not only to be supreme, but that we invite Jesus to be central. If we're going to have healthy relationships, Jesus has got to be the center. We're to ask Jesus what he is doing in in our spouse's life, and we choose to join him. We're to ask Jesus how he specifically shaped our kids and it's to join him in that. And we can go on and on and on. And as the band begins to play, there's a greater, maybe you've seen it already, but there's a greater reality within this text that all three of these relationships are metaphors for who we are in Christ. Think about it. Think about it, y'all. The church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the bridegroom. That's the, that's the relationship it spoke of first, right? The husband and the wife. The second is God becomes our father in Christ and we are his children. This is great news. This is great news for us. And we become servants of Christ who is our Lord, who is our master. And so how are you doing with the lording of your life? That's a very personal question. I know I just threw out there. But as I ask that, I'm asking myself that. Have I put Jesus as the Lord and master of my life? Have I put him central and vital to my marriage and to the way I parent and to the way I go to work and the way that I go into our community? I believe that is the invitation for us. If we want to experience the fullness in Christ, We have to put Christ as Lord of everything. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us for not giving you the reins of our hearts, for not giving you the reins of our marriages. I know this is myself and all of us, for not entrusting you and giving you and living for you in every way, in the way we parent our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids not giving you our all and our best in our work life as unto the Lord. So God, I pray that you would give us continued wisdom and how to understand the rich truths and treasure of your word. But I pray, God, that you would give us spiritual fortitude to, to proceed exactly according to your design and plan. And God, to do that, we need your help. I need your help. But I simply say anew, Jesus, you are Indeed, my Lord. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.